Hello, I'm Dr. Stephen Hassan, and I'm very grateful to my mentor, Dr. Thomas Gutheil, for agreeing. Thank you, Tom, for coming Pleasure. on the Influence Continuum. Uh, I'd like to read a, a micro bio of you because you've been doing this work for is it 50 plus years, forensic psychiatry, something like that. About that, and yeah. I'm going to read just a few sentences for our listeners. Dr. Gutal is professor of psychiatry and co-founder of the program in psychiatry and the law, uh, Beth Israel Deaconess Department of Psychiatry, Harvard Medical School. He is the first professor of psychiatry in the history of Harvard Medical School to be board certified in both clinical and forensic psychiatry. An internationally known forensic psychiatrist and author of over 300 publications in the national and international of clinical and forensic literature, Dr. Gutal has served as consulting or expert witness in more than 40 states. He's the recipient of every major award in the forensic field and has multiple teaching and writing awards. He's also the recipient of the 2000 A. Clifford Barger Lifetime Achievement in Mentoring Award, and you've mentored countless people over decades. Right. Uh, uh, and um, in Harvard Medical School, and you live and work in the Boston area. And Tom, I just I was reflecting that uh, it was uh, Dr. Rich Parker who introduced me to you initially. I think it was maybe six, seven years ago. That's um, about right. And he said, you know, I was asking him about expert witness stuff because I was getting threatened by a cult to be deposed and I was freaking out. And he said, you know, people get trained how to do expert witness stuff. Do you know about this forensic think tank at Harvard Medical School and Thomas Gutal? And I'm like, no. He said, you want an introduction? I'm like, yes, please. <laughs> and uh, so he introduced us, and you kindly invited me to present, actually, on my work, at which point you said, you know, we don't, you don't have to be a psychiatrist. If you want to come to meetings and learn, you're invited. Everyone can be a member. And I'm like, wow, thank you. Yes, please. <laughs> and it's been an incredible learning experience. The other members who are psychiatrists, lawyers, um, uh, psychologists, um, and just experts, content experts who've come through Harvard and are now global, come mm. and present the most mm -hmm. fascinating, interesting subjects. So it's Wednesdays, 11 to 12. It's one of my favorite hours of the week. But when I had this opportunity to do a podcast, you were uh, high on my list, Tom, to have your wisdom because you really, th this is the interface of mental health and human rights and the law. Right. And, and the justice system. related issues. Yes. So right. that's my intro to you. Uh, what I might ask you to, to start with is just how did you get interested in psychiatry and then how did you get interested in forensic psychiatry since you were a pioneer? Well, the uh, interest in psychiatry is uh, fairly traditional and perhaps a little stereotypic. Uh, my father was a, a uh, well-known psychoanalyst in New York City uh, for many years and had come over from Europe and had trained with Stekel, who had trained with Freud. So I, I like to say I'm three down from Freud, uh, but that pr probably won't get me anywhere. Uh, 
But uh, so I was interested in that and never stopped being interested in it right from um, childhood and then went uh, through the system. And then my um, residency was at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center, which is this weird hybrid of a state hospital and the major Harvard teaching hospital. Right. You don't often see those as a combination. And d during the time I was there uh, as an attending, I came back uh, to um, after uh, graduating, I came back as an attending. Um, there was a case called uh, originally Rogers versus Oaken. And this was a right to refuse treatment case, mm -hmm. which enabled patients to refuse uh, uh, mostly at that time psychotropic medications, antipsychotic medications. Uh -huh. And since unfortunately that was the one uh, thing that was most instrumental in having patients able to leave the hospital at some point, um, we, um, with a couple of my colleagues, we, we uh, worked on this idea that the court has made it possible for them to be rotting with their rights on. Mm. So um, I got to repeat it, that rotting it, with their rights on. Right. Please. <laughs> and, so, and that was helpful in, in sort of getting the law to listen. Uh, anyway, uh, in a more personal way, uh, the problem was that uh, there was this new law, but nobody knew how to actually make it work, what the, what the logistics were. And um, I was running one of the inpatient units, and we had this very interesting young man who um, was a, a, a professional flautist and had become psychotic. Mm. And um, long story short, um, we were finally, finally, after a long period of time, able to treat him. The most recent version of that is treatment delayed is treatment denied. Huh? Yes. Uh, and... Um, uh, Anyway, at some point, he committed suicide, oh, and I was enraged because here he was at the major Harvard teaching hospital and on what I, of course, personally thought was the best ward in the hospital, and he might as well have been in rural Mississippi for the, all the treatment he was getting. Mm -hmm. And as a result, um, first I got enraged, and after I got enraged, I got interested mm. and decided to say, well, you know, how often does this happen? What's, what's the story? And uh, one of my trainees, uh, a young man named Paul Applebaum, who rose to great heights in uh, forensic psychiatry, um, we decided to study this. And we did the first article on overt treatment refusal. Uh, and um, uh, it was part of a special section of the American Journal of Psychiatry called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Madness, <laughs> um, which is another, another blow. And... Um, Basically, at that point, I turned from more or less a psychoanalytic pathway to a forensic pathway and haven't looked back uh, ever since. So when somebody asks, how did you get into forensic activity? I look at them cheerfully and say, through rage. Mm. And that usually pauses them and I have to explain that. Yeah, but any clinician who's lost a client or a patient knows the pain and the suffering and the Woulda, coulda, shoulda. What, what did we not do? What should have been done? You know, uh, right. analysis afterward. And what were we kept from doing in the interest of the patient by this right. new law? Right. Okay. So, how did the program in psychiatry and the law come about? And how long was that after your initial rage over the Rogers? 
very shortly afterwards, um, the um, in the mid seventies is when uh, the uh, case occurred, and in the uh, late seventies is when uh, Paul Applebaum, who I mentioned before, uh, decided to try to create a chief residency in psychiatry. And we have had about 20 chief residents in psychiatry over the years who act as consultants to the inpatient services and also to uh, run ethics rounds and do some interesting things. Um, And uh, then, um, I don't remember the initial thing, but one of my other students, young man named um, Harold Burstein, who became um, uh, a resident, went from medical student to resident, and um, he had worked with a professional writer, uh, Archie Brodsky, uh, on a previous book, which is very interesting and, and successful. And so the three of us were uh, would occasionally get together to discuss things. Uh, you know, uh, uh, to, to paraphrase a famous play, three white guys sitting around t- uh, talking. And um, uh, gradually, a couple of people decided they wanted to hear what we had to say or they wanted to bring their own issues to us. One of the early ones was a guy who was trying to study seclusion in a different state. And so then we uh, expanded, and that was the nucleus at that point, 1981 maybe, of what is now the program in psychiatry and law. And it has grown beyond its uh, three founders to um, must be about 50 people, Mm -hmm. of whom about 20 every week meet. Mm-hmm. And it is uh, considered by many of us as like the most stimulating hour of the week and has brought people in from, you know, Japan, China, Germany, uh, you know, we've, the, the whole, the whole um, uh, international uh, a- agency, even when it was uh, local and we didn't have Zoom and there was no stuff, people would, would travel to the U.S. and sit in on the program meeting. So it became very successful and we're very happy with that. And it became a very, very productive um, unit in terms of research and publication. Our, for a period of time, our average publication rate was 10 papers a year, which is fairly uh, um, unheard of. Mm-hmm. And one magic year, we had 25 papers among all the members of the program. So it was very, very stimulating, very generative, and uh, became very, very uh, valuable. Uh, briefly, we we set up a, a forensic fellowship at our maximum security hospital here, uh, and uh, that, unfortunately, that stopped. Uh, they stopped funding us, but that we got about uh, I would say ten years of consultation and chief residents in psychiatry and forensic fellows mm-hmm. for a period of time, and now it's basically and none of those formal operations are still in progress or in in, in uh, process, but uh, the program itself is still totally active and uh, begins to be, you know, it's well-known and, and um, invites uh, lots of people to join and, and participate in the discussions. Absolutely. And with the pandemic, because we were forced to not meet in person and go Zoom, we have the benefit of having some of the top people in the country and the world Zooming right. in to do presentations. Right. We just heard from a professor who is a psychologist, a lawyer, who's into neuroscience, mm-hmm. doing a presentation about the insanity defense and what we know about the neuroscience of the right. brain about it. It's these types of things that are just make make it really one of my top hours of my week. And also just the networking is incredible. 
And I also want to just do a shout out to Michael Commons, who is a director of research, does a lot of the quantitative studies, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And it was Michael who heard me talk and he said, you need to go get your doctorate. And if you go, I'll supervise your research. And I was like, I'm in my 60s, please. And he's like, if you really are serious about wanting to update the law, you're not going to be taken seriously unless you have science and unless you have a, a doctorate. And I talk with my wife and the rest is history because I finished a year ago and I did my doctoral yeah, research thanks to you and to Michael and Harold and, and Archie and the other people at the program. Because we get to talk about these issues, and I get to hear feedback from, mm -hmm. from everybody. Sure, and well, it's, one of the, besides being a think tank, uh, one of the functions of the program has always been that somebody's doing something. Let's say they're writing something, they're going to study something. Right. Uh, it's the opportunity to present what you have in mind right. and get the feedback from all these people with these vastly different uh, perspectives to sort of see if, in fact, you know. Uh, that's a good idea or how it could be modified to be a better idea and so forth. So that kind of feedback. Also, we another thing we do related to that is ethics consults, which um, is sometimes helpful. You, you may want to just say something that's legal, but you have a funny feeling about it. So one of the things you can do is present it to the program and right. get some input. And a couple of the people in the program are actually ethicists. Right. So I, I it's my understanding that Harvard was the first, your program was the first, and now other universities have forensic think tanks around the world? Yes, it, it served, it was so obviously a productive model that a number of other places uh, set up similar situations. They're, they're all obviously quite different, but the idea of a situation where you could just kick ideas around and possibly generate uh, contributions to the literature uh, that was, I think, the model, and people have uh, picked up on it. Right, and I've met people and listened to them at, from Stanford Forensic Think Tank attributing to you and, and your example. influence. Right. So there's a couple more things I want to talk about. First of all, there's an organization of the American Association of Psychiatry and the Law, and I believe right. you are president of that. Okay, is that so American Academy, Academy Psychiatry and Law. Me. Yep. is the National Forensic Psychiatry Association. And then the International Academy of Law and Mental Health is the International Forensic. Uh, and you were uh, you were asked to be the head of both of these bodies, correct? At different points, I was president of both, yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, for me, it was mind-blowing. You mean there's an international organization of people from all different countries, all mm -hmm. interested in the inter face between mental health and the law? Yes. And the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's been, that's been around for maybe 20 or 30 years. Yeah. yeah, so I got a chance to go to Prague and present, and I met a lot of incredible people and learned a lot. There was a big uproar about Rome, uh, mm -hmm. and enemies of my work made it very hard for me to attend and present by threatening mm -hmm. to to cancel the whole conference. So that was horrible, but I'm looking forward to future meetings with people from around the world who want to make the world a better place. <clears throat> so that's awesome. Um, so having mentioned these two organizations, I want to switch, if I may, because 
I think you have mentored more people than any person I've ever met. Like I have had a lot of legendary names mentor me in different points of my career. Robert Lifton comes to mind, Philip Zimbardo mm -hmm. comes mm -hmm. to mind, but because you're part of Harvard, because and, and I've listened to you be the expert witness at Harvard Law School, trial mm -hmm. advocacy workshops, and mm -hmm. I got the opportunity to be an instructor and sit in and listen and how how experts are coached, but also how lawyer students are coached, right. how to do the law. So talk to me, give give our listeners like what are the do's and don'ts about mentoring? What's what do you what should you look for in a mentor and how do you recommend people act if people ask them to be mentored? Okay, I think that the challenge for the mentor is that if you have someone who has some status in the situation, one of the challenges is not letting that get in the way and uh, sort of letting the mentee uh, find their path and you basically encourage them or help them along the path but, uh, you know, if it can't be a situation where you say, here's what you need to do, right? Although there may be questions like that, you know, should I apply to this? Should I do this? Should I? Right. And, but uh, and, and the issue is letting the mentee find their path under your guidance rather than either building the path or pushing them along it, if I can keep the metaphor going. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, that's, I think, the critical issue. Um, mentorship is basically a chemical matter. Um, and so you, you know, you, the, the mentee needs to find someone that strikes them as either interesting or knowledgeable or both, and then connect with that person to become, uh, you know, get into a formalized, uh, um, uh, relationship. And I think that's, uh, pretty much all you can do. The rest of it is serendipity mm -hmm. and the rest of it is, uh, how things work out, how things break down, how things come out. And also the fit between the two parties, which is the chemical part. Right. You just have to have, uh, you know, that connection, that human connection of right. caring. But right. as you correctly or wisely uh, advise, um, you don't want to make them a clone of you <laughs> or just implement your right. agenda. Right. Or e even something as simple as a mere student. Mm-hmm. Because student, you, you know, I have supervisees uh, for, for decades, and uh, that's, right. that's a one-on-one -on -one student situation. Right. But the mentoring is over time right. and adapts to the stage that the mentee has reached at any given point. Right. That's true. If I may, I'll just say that I'm getting, I'm hearing from a lot of people, usually over email, uh, Love your work. Would you supervise me on this or that? Like, I mean, a lot of people asking me, but they haven't even done their cursory homework, like right. read my book right. or understand my models. And I don't, at this point, I ask my assistant not even to respond if people haven't done their homework. Like when, when I got to meet you, I looked you up. I ordered several of your books because- and I did much, the same. Much appreciated. No, but I mean, if you if you want to study under someone, you have to you have to demonstrate that you want to learn, and not just take their time up, but to, that that you've done their homework. So that you're that you're serious. Yeah, uh, I think the the pitfall, if I can put it this way, is that uh, 
they're even in these two separate realms, supervisor and mentor. Um, the pitfall is that for some people, uh, it is an attempt to do something that really resembles therapy. And that's not going to work. The supervisor should not be the therapist, nor, nor should the mentor. It's, if you can divert the person to treatment, that's a whole separate relationship, right. whole separate uh, scale of values. Yes. But uh, you, you want to uh, resist attempts to place the supervisor or the mentor into the therapeutic slot. It's a right. different thing. So healthy boundaries and clear boundaries. Good. And, right. and, and staying centered. So um, needless to say, Tom, I'm a controversial guy, and there was some controversies over the years at the program around, like, I have this lowly master's degree in counseling psychology. Where do I get off wanting to do expert witness stuff or to, to redefine how we understand undue influence? And I just want to thank you publicly for sticking up for me and just saying, you have a right to your opinion to not think, but he can be here and we can do this subject. And I think there's some value here. I have to say in that context, um, since we have had at the program medical students uh, sit in and participate, we are we have never excluded anyone really uh, mm -hmm. You know, although the temptation has been there on some occasions, right? But um, uh, it, it's a it's not a um, meritocracy, so to speak. Right. You don't you don't have to have done anything, and you don't have to be anything. You just have to be interested, right? And if that's there, that's fine. And and respectful, and right. listen and learn is also. So right. now I want to come to like if you had your way. If if someone from the White House says, what do we need to change in America, for example, mm -hmm. we can make it a global question after America, mm -hmm. but like what needs to change? What what are you concerned about now, given where we're at and what what solutions might you suggest? Uh, solutions may be harder, but the two main issues that I would point to, given given that question, one is. Uh, seriously following ideas of parity in which mental health receives as much attention, funding, opportunities, uh, locations, facilities as general medicine, because in fact it may even be more prevalent as a psychiatric issue than it is as a general medical issue, number one. Yep. And num number two, it would be great, great if um, the concept of therapeutic jurisprudence, which has been brought up, which is considering whether a particular law relating to the mental health population has a therapeutic effect or, as in my uh, classic case, uh, an intrusive effect and it causes harm. So um, remember, the, uh, the medicine starts from the principle of, in the first instance, do no harm. Right. But the law has no such uh, code. The issue is solving the the issue between the case and the statutes and the decision making and so forth, but it, it there's no it has no um, obligation to ensure lack of harm. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, that ha often causes friction, and uh, there's not a great deal one can do about that from the medical side. Uh, sometimes, as in the from forensic forensic side, you can actually do something, 
and especially by writing articles that call attention to the problems created by this uh, dichotomy. So, right. uh, you know, those are, the, those are the two major things. And, of course, there's about 600 little things that would be helpful, but that's another story. Well, so let's just come back to, you know, um, the idea that um, mental health should be treated on the same level as you have a heart problem or you have right. a, a, a lung problem. Uh, I couldn't agree more. And in mm -hmm. fact, I am of the belief system that we are embodied minds and that our bodies are expressions of our minds. And um, and a more holistic approach to healthcare, uh, rather than everybody being specialists in little areas yeah. and not paying attention to other treatments by other experts that mm -hmm. may be giving medication, for example, or mm -hmm. other treatment protocols. A person isn't being given the time to be seen as a whole human being. Tragically true. Yes, you know some of that we have to uh, blame managed care, but at the same time, it is becoming uh, a, a disturbing philosophy in a number of places, and I think yep. that's an issue. Yep. So, mental difficulties like anxiety, depression, feeling of helplessness, suicidality, mm -hmm. have dramatically increased in in our population a lot because of the pandemic. Sure. The eco economic things. And it just seems to me that the government and mental health care should be given the money to teach everybody how to manage, like sleep mm -hmm. needs to be managed properly so people are sleeping well enough, mm -hmm. and diet and exercise, and again, more a more holistic approach uh, that needs to be called for. Do you want to talk a little bit more about other ways that maybe people could be prophylactically taught how to protect themselves or help their a, immune a, system, for example? A, a unit in school that identified the more common things, as you say, anxiety, depression, some stuff like that, phobias, um, would be very helpful because it would plant the idea that if you're feeling one of these things, that there actually is something that can be done about it. And uh, I can easily just sit here and imagine, uh, you know, right-wing folks saying you sh shouldn't get into that because if you talk about anxiety, you'll make people anxious. And, uh, you know, it actually turns out to work the other way, but it's a political question. And I suppose the intrusion of politics into not only psychiatry issues, but general health Right. Uh, whether you're talking about vaccination or abortion or whatever, uh, all of these things have become uh, dangerously politicized. And unfortunately, it's cost us a great many lives and right. bids fair to uh, cost a number more. Yeah. And would you agree with me that people spending eight to 12 hours a day on screens instead of like being in nature and actually being with human beings is a part of a problem? Oh, sure. And the inability to let go of your, your screen, people walking down the street with the phone open. And, you know, uh, obviously, if you uh, are, say, a mugger, uh, that's a delightful sight. <laughs> no, nobody has uh, maintained their awareness of their surroundings, but it's still uh, an addiction and in many ways uh, very problematic. Um, also, 
um, you know, this is obviously the current issue about how um, certain programs are so uh, concentrated in a particular thing. For example, you know, Fox News and and the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, all these things have made it hard for the kind of discourse that we in the program feature. In other words, you're allowed to have any view you want in the program, just as long as you're willing to discuss it. Right. And um, so, again, we think of that as kind of a model for how conversations and how discourse should occur, especially in clinical realms or scientific realms. Uh, Unfortunately, it ain't that way in a lot of parts of the country now. Right. And I know that I've been calling for decades that if you have a loved one in an authoritarian group who's experienced a radical personality change and is trying to push their beliefs on you, uh, that it's counterproductive if you care about the person to yell at them, call them names, say you're brainwashed, you're in a cult, or Mm -hmm. cut off contact, because that makes them feel persecuted and pushes them deeper into the ideological bubble. Right, where they feel at home. Yep, indeed. So... Tom, you, as my mentor, have graciously agreed to uh, put your name on on an article on the need for the legal system to be updated to what we understand now about undue influence Mm -hmm. and some models that might be helpful for Mm -hmm. judges and juries, like like Alan Shefflin's model, social influence Mm -hmm. model, looking at the influencer, the influencee, the who, what, when, where, and how, and to dissect it in a way that makes sense to judges and juries to uh, ascribe criminal, you know, criminal behavior if someone has been enslaved. Just like right. trafficking law says you can't be a labor, sl- uh, labor slave or a sex slave, people have been enslaved, at least in my experience. Sure. Um, maybe the best way to think about this is um, l- let's take, for example, undue influence. Mm-hmm. Um, this comes up as one of the two issues in, for example, writing a will. Yes, uh, where you you are, you have a very low requirement for the idea that you have the capability of doing a will. All you need to know is what you've got, um, who you're going to give it to, and what's a will. And it's generally thought as being the lowest threshold for a competence or capacity. Assessment, mm-hmm. right? It's really the uh, uh, most uh, minimal, right? Be- and again, because um, uh, who you're going to live your money to is the people around you and your your family, your friends, your associations, your organizations. Uh, that's been long term. So as short term memory begins to decay, it's remarkable that you still may have extensive amounts of long term memory, which may be the only ones that really matter. Uh, in uh, deciding if the will is valid. Mm -hmm. So that's one end. Um, The other end is that uh, in the old days, uh, a will that read all to wife, those three words, was actually (laughs) upheld as valid. Mm -hmm. So that's the minimalist uh, uh, will you can imagine. Um, Now, I want to just briefly describe two uh, polar cases um, a um, family with a lot of children, um, had the, um, one of the kids had uh, a preferential uh, award from the uh, bequest, a large, large amount, 
And the question was, well, was that undue influence? Well, it turns out it was due influence in that this child had taken the, uh, the, uh, the parent to medical appointments, had been supportive, had you know, come to the house and done all kinds of supportive stuff. So it was due influence, not undue influence, although the disappointed heirs obviously would make that claim. Right. And then, so that's due influence. The other thing is a situation where um, one of the members of a family started restricting visits from, from everybody else and pretending the person was at, not at home, even when they were at home, uh-huh. and gradually uh, you know, intruding into the person's life and taking it over. And there you have undue influence because it's it, you know it, it is not, you're not supposed to to do it that way. It interferes <laughs> with the free choices of the of the testator. Um, so uh, in, yeah. isolating the person, cutting off contact, uh, turning people away. Uh, the, in this latter case, the person actually turned away uh, visiting nurses who were going to help the the, uh, the elderly person. Right. And, you know, the classic story is the, the dying millionaire who leaves his estate to the nurse who was nursing him for the, for, during the last t- period of time. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's an interesting relationship, but it does leave one open to the question of, is the fact that you are now taking care of someone who's dying, you're the point person for their care, is that going to be a form of undue influence? And, you know, let's see what the other decision-making consists of. Right. So those are some of the things that you're up against. And I think the issue is be, uh, being as clear as possible about what constitutes due or undue influence and how the uh, issue can be brought um, in such a way that the most, uh, the, one of the most important decisions a person makes, which is who gets their estate, right. uh, isn't uh, contaminated by some kind of uh, unfair practice, which right. is these, co- these days called undue influence. Right. Them. So that you're talking about testamentary capacity in particularly elderly people. But what about the 20-year-old who got recruited deceptively into a religious cult, was given a a substantial trust fund, let's say, by the grandparents, Mm -hmm. and wants to sign it all over to the group, not thinking that they're ever going to want to leave the group one day or that Armageddon is going to happen any minute. And right. his soul will be judged badly if he doesn't give it he right doesn't away. Doesn't do it, right? Well, this is a, this is the more delicate and sensitive stuff. There may be some similar elements, such as restricting uh, visits from uh, family or um, poisoning the uh, person's mind against the family or friends and so forth. Right. You know, anyone outside the cult is a bad person, so shouldn't follow them. So those require a lot of sensitivity. I think this is where your contributions have been extremely important, where uh, you point out the fallacy of trying to browbeat, as it were, the person into the situation, but that an attitude of quiet exploration, focusing on the way the person got information and so forth, uh, is uh, is the approach to take. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a um, a very uh, successful a, t- a movie called A Ticket to Heaven, ah, which yeah, talks about someone who was in, uh, involved in in something which is disguised, but it's obviously the Reverend Moon's. It was uh, my former group. cult, yes. Yes. And um, in it, uh, nothing's happening until at one point, uh, one of the deep programmers says, you know, rather calmly, how do you make sense of the fact that someone who is in favor of peace has... Um, 
arms manufactories under their uh, ken. And the person goes, what? And this, you get the sense that at that moment, there's a sudden shift, that something mm -hmm. has occurred that's extremely important. And all it took was that question. They didn't, they didn't you know, tie him up and beat him. They simply raised a question. And that can sometimes be the critical element in uh, breaking through an influence uh, uh, pattern. Yeah. Uh, but you may, you may not be able to. People may, you know, stay locked into uh, their belief system. Yes. Uh, you know, uh, these days, you could say that the uh, vaccination opponents have a kind of cult-like relationship with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, when uh, President, ex-President Trump mentioned vaccines, after his previous dismissal of vaccines, he got booed by his own party. Right. Which means that they were they were so entrenched that they were in the cult even after he'd sort of left that piece of it, right? Uh, so I found that really interesting. Yeah, it is very very interesting. So I want to come back to your first introduction with Rogers to the mm -hmm. legal system. For me, in the terms of this topic of undue influence, when I was first deprogrammed in 1976, the only method to help somebody in a mind control cult was forcible take, taking them away physically and isolating them from the cult in order to expose them to information about brainwashing and expose them to former members. Mm -hmm. And judges were granting ex parte conservatorships to parents for one mm -hmm. week. Mm -hmm. uh, they would go before a judge, your honor, my adult son, we believe is a victim of artful and designing people. And we would like permission to have temporary custody of him to afford him the opportunity to learn about information about the group that we don't think he knows about, like an arms factory, for example, mm -hmm. uh, as well as understanding Chinese communist brainwashing at the time sure. Lifton's model was being used. And they were being granted, and I did a number of those cases that was in my deprogramming one-year phase in 76 mm -hmm. to 77, but then all of a sudden, the ACLU got involved. They approached all these different religions and said, <laughs> hey, if we allow somebody to say you're being brainwashed, we're next. So we have to clamp this down and not do this. But sure. I can tell you in my 45-year career, there are cases where it's so obvious that someone is being exploited yes. and abused but because the, the 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 police can knock on the door and say, are you okay, Tom? Are you here of your own free will? Oh, you are? Okay. Wellness check done. You're yes. fine. Best You're thing ever happened to me. And the school. family is like, this, this brilliant PhD is washing the laundry of a gypsy psychic, you know, on the street right. corner. Right. But there's no remedy that the law right. has to help these people. So that's where I go crazy. Sure. Because I take the position of, look, if it's legitimate, it will stand up to scrutiny. And if you're so confident that the beliefs are correct, why not listen to ex-members and critics and decide sure. for yourself? Sure. And and so that that's what I've learned is not to try to persuade someone out, but just to share information, tell your story, your journey, <clears throat> And, Ask good and, questions. And raise questions. I was just going to say, yes, that's critical. Yeah, empower right. the person to be themselves. Right. And the other thing is posit hypotheticals. Like, 
And this is one of my favorites I'd like to share to a Mooney. So tell me, what would happen if you're there at Tarrytown, father's on the stage, and he says, I need to tell you, I need to apologize. I've just seen a therapist. I'm now on medication, and I realize I'm not the Messiah. Go home. <clears throat> would you believe him? And then the Mooney would say, oh, he would never say that. And right, I right, say, exactly. I know yeah. he wouldn't, but what if he did? <laughs> what if he what did, would right? you do then? Right. Would you believe him? Because you are committed to being obedient to whatever he tells you to do. And now he's telling you that he's a phony messiah and you need to leave. Mm -hmm. Just that thought exercise blows mm -hmm. members' minds. It's right. Like, and and it's not it's not abusive. It's not violent. You're just right. raising the question. Yeah. And you get the initial answer that you you said, which is uh, he'd never do that, so I don't have to worry about this concept. And you gently but firmly continue to raise it as a question. Right. And at some point, you hope something good will come out of that. Right. And for me, the Achilles heel is talking to them about a group they think is a cult and is bad yes. Yes. and using the parallels there. So right. what do you think about somebody who gives over their trust fund you know, to Rajneesh and thinks he's God, and then right. you find out he was raping all the women and giving them drugs. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't enlightened, but now you've given away your trust fund. What, how do you think that person would feel? Oh, he, they'd feel angry and upset. And Exactly. <laughs> you said it. <laughs> but that's, you know, again, sure. it's, it's, so, it's so important. Um, I'm very grateful to you, and um, we have a lot of work that needs to be done around the world to combat authoritarianism, mm -hmm. and and I'm with you. Our mental health is vital uh, mm -hmm. for everyone to be good mm -hmm. citizens, and we need mm -hmm. to bond more with real people, have actual real friends, not just followers on social media, but right. actual people that we care about, we know, who know us. Mm -hmm. Where we can be our true selves with, and um, and I I just I'm so grateful to to your dedication um, to keep teaching and mm -hmm. and wanting to share your wisdom, you know, with the audience. Mm -hmm. As we wrap up, I always like to ask: Is there any closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, I I want to just salute your career as someone who is putting out the kind of information that will help people in authoritarian cults or authoritarian groups. Uh, we are very close to a dangerous fascism in this country, uh, thanks to one of the parties that are right. out there and uh, one of the uh, former occupants of the White House. And so we really need to be on our guard against that kind of uh, thought control uh, if we can. But unfortunately, we, we have now this convincing evidence that thought control um, is um, uh, live and well, shall we say, and we need to be alert about it, and we need to challenge it, and we need to mm. s to raise the question as to whether that's the only way to think. Yeah, so, and 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 to name malignant narcissists, and I know it's not in the DSM, but you know that yeah. sociopathic plus nar extreme narcissism right. profile is what people need to be educated about to avoid. Right. And and we need to find people who are responsible adults who want a future right. in the world, not just the metaverse 
of fantasy, but like we're we're facing right. global climate catastrophe. Yeah, uh, which and, which again, a certain number of people uh, in a cult like way are opposing, uh, mostly because it it, it challenges the um, donors of anti-climate support. Exactly, those yeah. who have fossil fuels who want to keep polluting right. to make but money. Keep the money coming in. Yeah. I, I, I'm enjoying the sight of a certain book behind you there, the little red hat that I'm <laughs> familiar with, and I think that's that was an enormously useful contribution. Um, I hope it continues to sell because I think we need to be alert uh, that uh, people who follow the last president may uh, attempt to repeat his level of uh, control and um, impulsivity. Yeah, thank you for saying dangerous. that. Thank you for saying that as well. And I was actually coached at the program in psychiatry and law by several people. Don't write that book because you won't be able to serve as an expert witness in a lot of states, in a lot of court cases, because the jury may have a bias against you, Steve. And it's led me to think long and hard about how can I help the most amount of people. And right. it's pretty much doing consulting stuff and researching and mm -hmm. writing mm -hmm. and letting testifying experts like yourself with Uber credentials to explain the science to, uh, to judges and juries. Which right. You do so well. Thank you. So thank you again and uh, continued success. Good health. And uh, uh, we'll be Great, in touch. Thanks. It's great. Been, been a privilege to talk with you on this. Uh, it's been a privilege for me. Thank you for mentoring me, Tom. Take care. That's it for today's episode of The Influence Continuum. I've been your host, Dr. Stephen Hassan. Theme music for the podcast by Nasser Malik. To read in-depth articles about influence both positive and negative, visit my website at freedomofmind.com. On Twitter and Instagram, my handle is at cultexpert. If you want to develop a comprehensive understanding of these topics, I highly recommend my books, Combating Cult Mind Control, Freedom of Mind, and The Cult of Trump, in that order. These books are a culmination of 45-plus years of experience and will really help you fully grasp the complex web of undue influence. I also have a three-and-a-half-hour online course titled Understanding Cults, The Basics, which can be found on my website. If you're a former cult member, I congratulate you on your bravery, invite you to use the hashtag IGOTOUT, and join our online community at igotout.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, love is stronger than mind control.